Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show will be talking, well, the U.S. men's national team post-mortem, a few days after. Uh, El Tri, Dest again, Brazil, Pie Wars, Hallmark, Emma Cleaning House, Under-17, Under-23, Euros, MLS Playoffs, FIFA Rankings, Giving Thanks, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this? Uh, what are we looking at? Wednesday, November 22nd in the year 2023. I'm doing well and adjusting to a new location. Yes, for those that uh, watch the show, uh, you will see us in yet another one of our sets because this is a work in progress. We've told you about the fifth floor and all of the uh, incredible stuff that we have going on up here. Multiple sets, uh, but we also have a desk that many of that have watched the show over the uh, years have seen us behind. That evidently was a uh, a remnant of, thankfully, a bygone time, which was the COVID era. And it was actually, I'm told, a desk that was made to accommodate the uh, you know the restrictions at the time in terms of distancing. And so we have new desks coming in that will put us closer together, a little bit more intimate and uh, a little bit more evolved if you uh, if, if you look at it that way. Uh, have you watched anything, my friend? Uh, we are taping on November 22nd. It is the 60-year anniversary of the JFK assassination. I am a JFK buff, so mm -hmm. I've been knee-deep in that. Uh, several things to mention. I read a book, Dallas 1963, which is all about the climate in Dallas in the years leading up to the assassination. Uh, watched a couple of documentaries. There's one on Disney, uh, JFK One Day in America, another on Paramount Plus, JFK What the Doctor Saw, which is very conspiracy driven. It's pointing out the discrepancies between what the doctors at Parkland Hospital saw and the official autopsy. Also, Rob Reiner and Soledad O'Brien have come out with a new podcast, Who Killed JFK, yes. in which they investigate the assassination. So I got all that going on. Is, is it out? Is the podcast out yet? Yeah, the third episode dropped today. I think it's going to be like eight episodes are released oh, one each I'm, week. I'm not doing it till the eighth one is, uh, you know how, you know my Fair feel about those things, but I will absolutely listen to that. I'm, I'm fascinated. I don't have anything, uh, individual, uh, you know, per se in terms of the stuff that I've watched, I've watched a lot and sometimes I, I forget about it, but I will say that, uh, you know, last night my wife and I were, uh, were going to sleep and I, I turned on, um, a, uh, one of those Christmas movies. And I know we're, we're coming to you on a Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. And for a lot of people, it's a complete faux pas to even mention Christmas. We have our lights up, our Christmas lights uh, up. We are raring to go. And when it comes to, you know, the Hallmark effect, for those that, you know, partake, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I can't get enough. I know that it's like comfort food. And I know that it is to a certain extent disposable when it comes to the movies, but I, I just love them. My wife loves them. She actually got mad at me yesterday because I was going to, uh, cause I didn't put on, I was clicking through and I passed one of these Christmas <laughs> movies that were going on. And usually they involve kind of the same, uh, the same type of storyline. And usually they involve stars that either are on their way up or many of them that they're on the way down, but I cannot get enough of them. So bring on the Hallmark. We'll talk more about Thanksgiving uh, in a little bit here, but bring on the Hallmark. I, by the way, I have to say something. You know that show you mentioned, uh, uh, Paramount. You know that uh, that that show that uh, our good friend Kate Abdo does uh, over there, kicking it, kicking it. Yes, yeah. kicking it. Uh, you know uh, they, they've uh, they've mentioned me a couple of times. She stole my look. The new one is out with uh, I think Mitch Purse over there, and um, 
she's got the hat that I'm wearing right now. She's wearing the exact same hat. Now, I recognize that I'm not the only one out there who has bought, bought this hat with the beautiful eagle and the freedom thing now. And I love it. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful hat. But uh, don't think that uh, for a second that I didn't see that Kate Abdo has stolen my look for her show over there. Or maybe it's the sincerest form of flattery. That show, it's Kate Abdo, Clint Dempsey, Moe Du, right? Yes, and Charlie Davies. Yeah, a lot of Fox rejects. What, was, was Ian Joy unavailable? <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, should we light this candle, my friend? Because we've got a lot to get to. Let's do it. All right, where should we start? We'll start with the U.S. men's national team. On Monday night, they suffered a 2-1 defeat away to Trinidad and Tobago, but given they had won the first leg 3-0, they claimed a 4-2 aggregate triumph, advancing to the Nations League semis and qualifying for the 2024 Copa America. We did a Spaces right after the match. Much of the talk centered on Sergino Dest's red card. You've now had another day or two to marinate on the performance, the Sergino Dest red card, and anything else? Uh, any more thoughts? Um, so now we, we talked immediately after the game, and people were fired up. I mean, there were there were people that wanted Sergino, and maybe even today, still want Sergino Dest out, done. Done with him. That type of behavior is unacceptable. My point then and my point now was uh, that Serginho Dest is the best right back we have. Now, s since then, people have come and said, well, what about Tim Weah, who continues to uh, play in that type of position? Okay, fine, if you want to move some things around. And by the way, that would open up a position out wide for Gio Reyna. So it's not crazy to start thinking about those things. But I, th I, I think people... Uh, I think people would agree, a lot of people would agree with me that he is the best right back uh, right right now. Maybe that, maybe that will change. My point was, in terms of punishment, he can and he should be, quote-unquote, punished. This is still an adult. This is still a professional. But keep in mind that this is still, even though it's the international game, this is still professional athletes and professional sports. And as you know, not just in soccer, but in all professional sports, it is not a democracy, all right? And not everybody is treated equally. And Serginho Dest, because of his talent and because of his ability and what he does, gives this team a better chance at winning. And I've said before that it's amazing what, to, to maybe to some, it's amazing what players will accept and ignore and will compartmentalize in order to win. And I think that this is a situation where, again, he will be punished, probably won't be called into the next window. We saw that happen to someone like Weston McKinney. But if Sergino Dest had, this was his first camp, or he was a younger, less experienced players, there's a good chance that we would not see him again in the national team program. But he has built up a, um, a body of work, and a lot of it is successful. He's not without fault where I think he is going to get the benefit of the doubt uh, going forward. I also, when people are screaming, yelling about this, he didn't seem to have a problem during the World Cup. As a matter of fact, he was very good during the World Cup, even with his challenges defensively. And this seeing red type of persona and personality, if this is something that has developed over the last year, okay. But I think he's the same person that he has always been. And he's always played on, uh, on that edge. Um, you know, Tim Ream, who we know is a leader and an experienced leader, was very, very public about the way that he thought uh, that this was disrespectful to him, to his teammates, uh, and ultimately to the national team program. I liked to see that because I had said coming out publicly, I think, is important because let's be honest, I think for Serginho Dest, a lot of the stuff that you tell him goes in in one ear and out the other. 
And maybe the only way to really get him is to, in a sense, shame him publicly. And I think Tim Ream uh, talked about it. You know, he's saying overall, it's a complete lack of respect for the guys that are playing and for the guys on the bench and for me. And it's just a feeling of disrespect to be completely honest with you. I'm glad that he was honest. And I'm glad that he was fired up. I don't know how much ultimately this is going to impact Serginho Dest, but I've, I've kind of moved on from Serginho Dest. It was a dumb thing, but it's, I don't want him banished and I don't want him off of the national team for, simply because of this. Yeah, there is this notion that a coach should treat all the players the same, but then there are others like you that point out that that's not realistic, that not realistic. a star player gets different treatment than the guy at the end of the bench. And for whatever reason, that seems to be a controversial take. It shouldn't be a controversial take. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but this is not AYSO. This is not even high school. This is not even college. This is people who not only are professional, but they depend on the results to keep their job, whether you're Greg Berhalter or whether you're the actual players. I, I didn't like everybody that I played with, but ultimately I wanted people around that for that 90 minutes I knew were better than anything else and for that 90 minutes gave me the best chance of, uh, of winning. And this is the national team. I will, say, uh, I will say this, the dynamic right now of this national team for Greg Berhalter is delicate and I guess is fragile. I'll be interested to see how he goes about dealing with this. We saw him deal with Weston McKinney uh, a few years back uh, when he stepped out of line. And I think it's important now with a, a different type of dynamic for him to to deal with this so that he doesn't lose the player, but also that balance of not losing the rest of the team. Because if the rest of the team feels, you know what, this is untenable. We cannot continue on. And we are better off going forward with a lesser right back, but with Sergio Dest out of the situation. And I'm not saying that that's the case. You know, that's an interesting thing for, for, G, uh, for, uh, for Greg Berhalter to have to deal with. It was interesting to see Gio Reyna, one of the players that went over and tried to calm Dest down. If there's a silver lining to all this, it's that the Gio Reyna situation almost feels like old news at this point. We've moved on to a different controversy. Right? I mean, this is... <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so maybe Gio and Greg can thank Serginho Dest for taking the, uh, the spotlight off of them and putting it, uh, putting it on him. But, you know, again, I, I think it's, it's convenient and we, we love to tear people down. And, and by no means am I excusing his actions. This was unacceptable, all right? And there is no legitimate reason for losing your head like that. And if you listen to our, uh, our uh, spaces the other day, just putting your hand over your mouth <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean that what you say is not heard by ultimately the most important people, which are the referees on the, uh, on the field. And so he, he got what he deserved. I think he will be punished. But again, because he is Serginho Dest, it is going to be a different type of punishment and a different type of reaction than if he was just any other player. Uh, elsewhere in the Nations League quarterfinals, I'm going to end on Mexico so we can talk about that game. Yep. But uh, Panama beat Costa Rica 3-1 on Monday to complete a 6-1 aggregate triumph. Uh, Jamaica, which had lost 2-1 at home to Canada, then won 3-2 at BMO Field to advance on away goal. Shamar Nicholson scored twice in that second leg. Bobby Reed from the penalty spot. Alfonso Davies got one of the goals for Canada. And then Mexico, which, remember, had lost 2-0 away to Honduras, then won 2-0 at the Azteca. Luis Chavez late in the first half. Edson Alvarez in the 11th minute of second half stoppage time. Uh, that sent the tie to extra time. Uh, 
extra time was scoreless. We go to penalties. Mexico prevailed in a shootout in which Huerta got to take his penalty three different times. Mexico survived. So uh, a lot of U.S. fans, first off, were hate watching this and were very annoyed <laughs> at the 11 minutes of stoppage time because the referee had indicated nine and then we played beyond that and that's when Mexico got their second goal, which kept them alive. Did you have an issue with that? Well, okay, so let's talk about Mexico. I do want to circle back at one point to uh, our friends from the Great White North, sure. Canada. Uh, but let's go right to this. Like, don't bore us, get to the chorus. And this is the chorus because so many are talking about what this game was. And in the context of CONCACAF, a lot of people got their tinfoil on uh, and look at it as orchestrated and as a conspiracy. Look, it, it warms the cockles of my redheaded American heart, Mossy, each and every time I can see El Tri, the Mexican national team, struggle and flail and flounder in the way that they did for much of this game. However, when the opposition, in this case, a Honduran team that was really, really good that first leg, well, that team didn't show up in the Azteca, okay? As a matter of fact, a team playing on the road, playing in the Azteca against a very good uh, Mexican team that had all of the ball, did what a lot of teams will do, and they pulled into a shell, and they said, we're going to bend and not break. And for much of the game, it worked. The other part of the equation was what some might consider the dark arts, but it's also prudent uh, when you are playing on the road, is the time wasting. And that there were nine minutes added on, uh, and then, you know, I'll get to the penalties in a second, but the time part of it, there is so much wasting of time in our game. And over the last couple of years, we all know that it, they're trying to compensate for it. And so I have no problem in a game, especially like this, where there was so many times where Honduras players were down on the field, where they were milking the clock, the goalkeeper in, just in, in himself, time and time again, and included in the two extra time periods. So the, the, the fact that this was left late, this was not Fergie time. This was not a BS type of uh, addition simply to get Mexico to win. This was absolutely legitimate. And if you're Honduras, defend better or stop wasting time, and then the game would have been done and you would have won. When it gets to the penalty uh, part, let's get back to that. But just, just in terms of the time, Mossy, would you agree with me? Yeah, you know, we in the television world have had to uh, come to grips with this uh, phenomenon of crazy long stoppage times because it affects how long a post game we do, what time we get off the air. And the thing I always tell people is that the longer the referee assigns the less of a chance there is that it will be that actual time because something's going to happen during the stoppage time to extend it even further. So when he held up nine minutes, I said to myself, it's not going to be nine minutes because Honduras is going to keep time wasting right. during that stoppage time and he's going to add more than that. So yeah, I didn't have that big of an issue with it. Uh, you know, we all complain about time wasting until it's a team that we, <laughs> we want to see lose that's, yeah, right. you know, <laughs> so um, that benefits from the referee actually doing his job properly and assessing the correct right. stoppage time. So yeah, I didn't have a big issue with that. Yeah, the, the nine minutes added were because of the behavior of the previous 45 minutes. And it, you're it's insane to think that that behavior is going to change in that nine minutes so that there was even more added on. It's not a surprise. Now, when it, go ahead. 
And I do think there's an art to time wasting. And the thing sure. I would tell players is you do it to get close to the finish line. But once the finish line is in sight, then you stop. I hate when deep in stoppage time, you have players throwing themselves on the ground when the game's about to end. And then it just antagonizes the referee into giving more and more time. And so I do think players need to understand that once you get to about the 80-something minute mark, then you need to stop. Okay, you, you did your do the job time-wasting up to that point to get close to the finish line, but then just play it straight the rest of the way. So then we get to the penalties, all right? And from a Honduras perspective, that's, that's good. Considering the way the game went, they had none of the ball. They were under pressure the entire game. And obviously a last-minute uh, goal sent it into the extra time. That they got to, to penalties in and of itself was a, a success. And then kind of anything can happen. I will say that uh, Chino Huerta, I thought he was the best player for Mexico in the run of the game, all right? Uh, and then we have this moment where <laughs> he misses... His penalty. Bring it back because the goalkeeper stepped uh, off the line before contact with the ball. All right, we've seen that happen before, right? You get a second bite at the apple. The soccer gods have smiled on you, all right? And everybody can see it, all right? Th again, this is not a conspiracy. This is not CONCACAF orchestrating anything. This is a law that's been in place that every goalkeeper knows, that every team knows, that we even have a ceremony now beforehand where the referee explains to the goalkeepers what the situation is. The technology is there to catch this type of behavior. And so he gets caught. Fine, you've been dinged, and, and, and it results in another one. They do it again, and it's again over the line. All right, so fool me once, fool me twice, all that. You have nobody to, to blame but yourself. So. That this goes three times, because then they do it again, is amazing. That this player, who I thought was the best player for Mexico in the run of, uh, uh, in the run of play, missed multiple penalties. Uh, he probably shouldn't get up there <laughs> anymore. And finally, even the third one that he finally made, it was only by the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the skin of his teeth, if you will, to, uh, to finally make it. But again, this for me, is not, this is not the hill to die on if you want to talk about conspiracy, if you want to talk about orchestration when it comes to CONCACAF. The only thing I'll say is you're not supposed to be allowed to come to a complete stop on a penalty. You can do a little stutter step. Pele famously invented that form of penalty kick taking. It was called the Paraginha in Portuguese. And lots of players over the years have tried to emulate it, but they do sometimes come to a complete stop and referees let them get away with it. You're technically not supposed to no, be allowed the, to do the that. The law is in the act of kicking the ball. So the, the actual run-up to it, all right, there, there is fainting allowed. There is, you know, I guess, I guess where, where you're coming from is the actual stopping of the motion. And that's what should happen. I mean, if you, if you want to change it, fine. Then change the law that says you cannot, once you start your motion from wherever it is, you cannot stop that motion or stagger that motion. It'll, it'll still be a little bit of subjective in terms of what's, uh, what's going on, I, I don't have any problem with the fainting and the stagger. I, I, I love it. I think it's part of the mind games that go on. Uh, but ultimately, the goalkeeper came off the line. Mexico goes, uh, goes through. So we have our semifinals set up. More importantly, Mexico qualifies for Copa America. Yeah, so uh, USA, Panama... Mexico and Jamaica are the four teams that qualify for the Copa America. The four quarterfinal losers do get another bite at the apple. So here's what we have to look forward to in March. Uh, first off, the Nations League semifinals, USA, Jamaica, 
Mexico, Panama. Those two matches at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. And then the winners will obviously meet in the final. And then the Nations League qualifying playoffs, if you will, to get into the Copa America will be uh, Canada against Trinidad and Tobago and Costa Rica against Honduras. Those matches will be in Frisco, Texas. So it, it's all Those happening. Those are one-off games. Too. Those are one-off games as well. Well, look, so uh, in, first off, that Canada is in this position is, it, it's a sad commentary on how far and fast this Canadian program has, falled. I mean, has, has fallen. We, we talked about them obviously winning the octagonal and flying. And okay, it didn't go great from a group perspective in the World Cup, but they were in a difficult group. And they have not only not kicked on, but they have, they have regressed. And that, that sucks for Canada. That sucks for what's happening in the next couple of years, obviously with the World, World Cup coming. And again, they did the hard work. They won away. They went down to Jamaica and got a win. And yet when they bring it back to the Great White North, they somehow contrived to lose to Jamaica. And if you, you know, if you watch the game and you watch the different goals, it's just, it's mind numbing. And so now they have to find a way into Copa America. I'd, I'd like Canada to be there, but not if they suck. And that, that was just a horrible, horrible result and a horrible, horrible performance at home. I think they'll beat TNT, but it does feel like a program that's losing momentum. Yeah, it, uh, it, it does. All right. So, you know, those are the, uh, those are the final four from a Copa America perspective. You know, this is, uh, this is a good thing. So there are two, still two places. Now you have the 10 from Comnable. You now have these added four that have just qualified. And then you have another two to make out the 16 for next summer, right? Correct. All right. Where should we go from, uh, from, from, uh, from here, Mossy? Next up, the U.S. women have two matches coming up against China in early December. Uh, December 2nd, they'll play at Drive Pink Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. Then December 5th, they'll play at Toyota Stadium in Frisco, Texas. They announced a 26-player squad for these games. Twyla Kilgore is still in charge on an interim basis, but Emma Hayes did have input on this roster. Uh, for those of you watching us, you can take a look at the roster. Some familiar names, Sophia Smith, Trinity Rodman. Rose Lavelle, Lindsay Horan, recent State of the Union guest Naomi Gurma, uh, the newcomers Jenna Nauswanger uh, from Gotham City, uh, Corbin Albert from PSG. But the bigger story is who's not on the roster. Uh, some of the World Cup veterans have dropped out, like Alex Morgan and Becky Sauerbronn and Crystal Dunn, Alyssa Nair. Uh, they're framing it as if they're just giving those players a rest, but a lot of people think this roster is the dawn of a new era. That's the way that I am going to look at this roster. And I hope that this is a cleaning of house by Emma from afar. We still don't know how much she is going to be involved and there's still contractual obligations. Um, if she is making those calls from afar, which I think she probably is, that is a good thing. And that she is doing something like this, I think is awesome because I think she has to kind of send the message. And, and you mentioned it, you know, no Alex Morgan. Uh, no, listen there. Dunn, Sobran, Huerta, uh, Mewis, Sanchez, Sullivan, players that have been around for a while. And if I'm, if I'm Emma Hayes, I want to make sure that I do set that tone. Now, there will be those that say, hey, we, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But let's be honest. All right. This, first off, this bathwater has become tepid. All right. A and secondly, the baby in it is no longer a baby. And this is exactly what the doctor ordered. And this is exactly why Emma Hayes has been hired to, like I said, clean house, 
not start anew because there is still plenty of talent, but a lot of young talent and almost turn this page, start this new chapter for this team and get this team back to where it belongs. And again, get this team back to focusing on what is the most important thing, which is winning soccer games and being the champion of the world when it comes, uh, comes to the World Cup. And I think that this is a shot across the bow and a warning message to everybody that says there is a new sheriff in town, even if she hasn't actually gotten to town yet. And this is going to be a very, very different national team going forward. What else? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how many of these veterans make it back for the Paris Olympics. A lot of people still think Alex Morgan will be there. I'm not so sure. Yeah, I mean, but they, they think that she will be there or that she should be there. I mean, I, look, Alex Morgan is a living legend. But the time for Alex Morgan, I think, has passed relative to the U.S. women's national team and what it wants to do. And again, I know the Olympics from the, on the women's side is viewed differently than on the men's side. But I still think, I mean, the reason why this team is so popular, the reason why this team has become iconic is relative to not just being the best in the world and having some of the best players in the world, but winning World Cups, winning gold medals in the Olympics from a soccer perspective, it pales in comparison to the World Cup. And so while this next summer, I think, is going to be important in that development, the ultimate goal and the ultimate focus for Emma and company is going to be on the World Cup, and rightfully so. Uh, transitioning back to the men, but dropping down to the youth ranks. The United States is out of the under-17 World Cup. They put up a valiant fight, but they fell 3-2 to Germany in the round of 16. So does this mean that in their final two games at this tournament, they let in, what, six goals? Six goals, Six yeah. goals. Well, that's not, a, that's not good. Uh, there's, no necessarily, there's not necessarily shame in losing to the likes of France and, uh, and to Germany. Well, uh, yeah. but a lot of the things that we talk about are about the youth development. And, you know, I mentioned on the previous pod uh, on the spaces that do we have to come to grips with the fact that maybe this team, when it comes to the full national team, isn't as good as we thought? Do we also have to come to grips with maybe what we thought was a much more evolved development and therefore a bigger pool and depth of talent and higher and better talent there isn't as talented as we thought? I don't necessarily, again, I don't necessarily think that. But it's not a good look, you know, you th and, and again, it's, it's not just, it, yes, it is the results. And it goes back to uh, something we were talking about with uh, Michigan and Ohio State off air, where, and for those that don't know, Michigan uh, hosts Ohio State in a huge, huge game. And I was saying that for Ohio State, they can lose at Michigan. They just can't lose badly. And so losing badly for this team to both, uh, France, and then to Germany, although there was a handball in the, in the German thing. It's not a good look in terms of the results and how those results came about. Well, the Germany game was 3-2. Germany didn't score their winner until the 86 sure. minutes. So they were so. in the game yeah. for that one. They, they were in the game for that one. But ultimately, does this will this be looked at as a successful campaign in the other 17 uh, World Cup? Not especially. Okay. Just right. okay. Okay. All right. Um, the U.S. also played a couple of under-23 friendlies during this window because they are preparing for the Paris Olympics uh, next summer. Uh, they tied Iran 1-1. Kramaski scored in that one, and then they lost 1-0 to Morocco. Yeah, and a lot of players with uh, senior experience. And I, just, I think that just shows that 
Greg Berhalter and his staff have brought in a lot of players over the last few years, just because you've jumped on the field. Yes, it makes you an international, but doesn't necessarily make you a seasoned, uh, a seasoned international. And again, where are those players coming from? What is this pipeline looking? I've, I've, I've talked about how I want players to be challenging. I want, whether it's a Weston McKinney or Tyler Adams or any of these big players that are kind of firmly part of the national team program right now, I want them to feel somebody coming up behind them. I want a fire to be lit. So my country for a young player that says, no, I'm not just going to let this play out in the way that everybody kind of has written it. I want to demand, and sometimes you have to bust your way through. So I don't know if there's enough of those players right now that are doing that, that are demanding to be seen and in doing so putting pressure and legitimate pressure on some of these, uh, some of these players that it's not their God-given right to start for the national team. That's it. That's it. All right. That was a good chunk right there. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we got some Euro stuff and Comnable. Oh, my goodness. My, we'll have to talk about that. And then, of course, MLS playoffs kicking back up this weekend. Don't go anywhere. Okay. Welcome back. Uh, all sorts of uh, Euro qualifying. And we're excited about next summer with the, uh, with, with the Euros. And uh, wh- what number are we at now in terms of teams that are qualified, Mossy? 21 of the 24 teams. Okay, so we still got some teams to come in. A lot of the usual suspects, uh, obviously Germany as hosts, and your France, and your Portugal, and England, and Belgium, and stuff like that. Any surprises? Any any teams? Finally, Italy qualified, so that's... Uh, That's where I was going to go. Two of the last teams to make it were Croatia and Italy. Uh, Croatia beat Armenia to cross the finish line. Italy eked out a draw against Ukraine. Uh, that match was played in Leverkusen. Uh, not without controversy, though. Did you see the play that everybody's talking about in second half stoppage time? Mudrik brought down by Cristante in the box. No penalty, no VAR intervention. The Ukrainians were furious. They have a right to be furious. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you saying that there, was, that there was things going on behind the scenes? I mean, did you agree that it was, at, at the very least, you know, deserved heightened inspection. Well, if you don't think the Honduras stoppage time was anything conspiratorial, <laughs> then surely this wasn't either. All right. So there's still three places out there for the Euros and those playoffs will happen and we will have our big, our full field. Yeah. The next order of business for us is December 2nd, the draw, which we're covering live on FS1. Stu Holden will be in Hamburg for that. Any excuse to send Stu out of the country, we usually take it he snuck that by me. He didn't. He wasn't saying anything to anybody. And then one of our bosses uh, mentioned it while I was while I was there. And so yeah, he's gonna have a good time over there, uh, hanging out. It's Stuttgart. Is that where it is? Where is uh, it? Hamburg? Hamburg. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Where where the Beatles uh, played often in the early '60s when they were coming up. Oh, look at you. Ian Joy, who I've already mentioned on this pod, he spent some getting, time there as a player. He's he loves that city. Yes. Uh, pot one, incidentally, of that draw, Germany, Portugal, France, Spain, Belgium, and England. Some strong teams there. Uh, Netherlands and Croatia are in pot three, as is Scotland, your new favorite team. Yep. Uh, Italy is in pot four, so we could have some tasty groups. The three playoff teams, incidentally, they go into pot four. And as far as who's in that playoff, it's the likes of Poland, Wales, Ukraine, Israel, Iceland, Greece, Georgia with Varadzkele. So there's some pretty good teams in those playoffs, and that'll spit out three more teams. And w- so what's the uh, the way it works in terms of top two teams coming out of the groups and then uh, and then others, or what? Yeah, so so the group phase of qualifying is over. And no, the no, top no, I'm talking two about teams in the tournament, because it's 20, 24 teams, right? 
Oh, yeah. No, so that'll be a, a four best third place team scenario. Any tournament with 24 teams. Right, has exactly. I just wanted to make sure. Yes. Uh, going forward. Okay. Uh, so, all right. Listen, uh, talk about Barry in the lead here. Let's move over to uh, Conmebol, shall we? Yes, uh, Conmebol World Cup qualifying we're talking about. <laughs> the big one, Tuesday night, uh, Brazil hosted Argentina at the Maracanã. Can I just can I just interrupt for a second? No. So uh, last night when this was all happening, I started texting Mossy. And Mossy's pretty good. I mean, if you've ever seen him, his phone is attached to his hand and he's just incredible in, in terms of the way that he works the phone. Dead air, dead silence, not even a peep, not a response. So you were... You were knee deep in it and you were focused in on what was happening last night, right? It was a lot to process, Lex. <laughs> uh, Argentina claimed a 1-0 win at the Maracanã. Uh, Nicolas Otamendi with the only goal in the second half. Um, kickoff of this match delayed about a half hour because the Brazilian police beat the out of Argentinian fans in the stands, which might result in Brazil being docked points or having to play matches behind closed doors. So that's no good. Brazil had never lost two straight World Cup qualifiers. We've now lost three in a row, punctuated by our first ever home World Cup qualifying defeat. Now, you might say, who could have seen this disaster coming? Boy. There was one person. Uh, Sean Sullivan has dug through the crates. I went back to our June 29 show. We received an Ask Alexi question from our good friend Alex Goldstein regarding the possibility of Carlo Ancelotti right, taking over Brazil. Hold on. I want confirmation, all right? I want confirmation. Can I, can I set this up? Yes, go ahead. So I explained to you that if Ancelotti takes over, it would be in the summer of 2024, which would create this awkward 18-month gap between the end of the World Cup and Ancelotti taking over. And I expressed concern about what might take place during those 18 months. Let's take a listen to me on June 29. We're going to be starting World Cup qualifying here. I don't think there's any danger of Brazil not qualifying, but Brazil has all these proud records. They've never lost a home World Cup qualifier. I don't want this to all go up in smoke. you got to figure out some way to bridge this period better, these 18 months. It just hasn't been well thought out. And am I going to have to live with Brazil getting pummeled for 18 months and then Ancelotti comes in summer of 2024 and it will have all been worth it if he, if he gets the team together? I don't know. Wait, to me, that's so he's not even going to coach during qualifying? He's going to miss the first several right. matches of qualifying, yeah. That's insane. <laughs> Summer of 2024, that, middle of the cycle. So no wonder you weren't responding last night because you were behind the scenes, all right, contriving, uh, conniving, if you will, to have this moment, all right? I will, I will give you this moment. Uh, and to, to, to your point, you have talked about the warning signs and the problems when it comes to Brazil, and not just the Brazil on the field, but also the leadership off the field and this, this strange type of thing. Although, listen, we're the U.S., and we just talked about Emma, so coaching from afar can be done. It's a very different type of situation right now. But I do also recall you saying that you were much more concerned with what happens if the interim coach actually starts doing well and that dynamic ultimately with Carlo Ancelotti. Well, you don't have to worry about that, my friend. I was going to say, I'm like the guy that boarded the Titanic and immediately looked around and said, you know, we're going to hit an iceberg. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I think there's two separate conversations, uh, a macro and a micro. They both need to take place parallel to each other. It's not one or the other. The macro conversation here is that Brazil is becoming a country that produces lots of good players, not as many great players. There's a quantity over quality element to Brazil's talent pool, which is concerning. Uh, I think there are some tangible reasons for that, some structural issues with Brazilian football, some transfer market dynamics that are causing that, and that needs to be addressed. Otherwise, it's not going to change. So that's the macro and maybe why Brazil hasn't been winning World Cups of late. 
with the micro because even allowing for what I just said, there are still good enough players here that it shouldn't be this bad. Sure. The micro is this shambolic coaching situation. And again, what I've always said is this. There's two different routes the Federation could have gone. You could have given this guy, Fernando Geniz, the job right after the World Cup permanently and accepted the fact that he has a style of play that takes time and there might be some growing pains early, but it's a long-term project. And by the time the next World Cup rolls around, everything will have clicked. Or you could go the Carlo Ancelotti route knowing that he was only going to take over in 2024 and you're going to have to bridge that gap. But if you choose to go that route, the manager you bring in to coach these six qualifiers, it's going to be eight games in total, six qualifiers and two friendlies. He has to accept that that's the role. And so he, he shouldn't be trying to implement some philosophy. It should be just about keeping it simple, churning out results, leaving the team in a good spot at the table, and then handing over to Ancelotti. And then, it's a BJ. Yes, and then that's when the, the cycle begins in earnest. And they, they brought in this guy, Fernando Geniz, who refuses to acknowledge that this is just a temporary caretaker role. He has not uttered the name Carlo Ancelotti once. He acts like he's the permanent coach. He gives these interviews after the games where he talks about, well, the results might not be good, but you can see the players starting to assimilate my ideas and, and the quality of the play is gradually improving. And I'm thinking, all that matters here is the results. What are you talking about? You're only going to be the coach for a couple more games. Like, why are you worried about it? <laughs> them assimilating your philosophy? It's completely bizarre, the situation. This guy, Fernando Genes, I actually do like him as a coach, but he was completely ill-suited for this temporary caretaker role, and it's led to just an absolute disaster. Can, can I go back to the uh, the macro? Yeah, because I think I think there's a correlation, uh, or, you know, or at least something maybe we can learn when it comes. When I say we, I mean the American soccer uh, culture. How does that manifest? Because by all accounts, they're not training anything, or training differently, right? I mean, the fundamentals or the way that they train players, which, as you said, has resulted in some of the greatest and most creative and most romantic type of players ever, that hasn't necessarily changed, has it? This is a longer conversation, okay. but I'll give you the Cliff Notes yeah. version. Uh, Brazilian football, the style of play now looks very differently than what they play in Europe because of the calendar and bad pitches and lots of other reasons. It, it, Brazilian domestic football, it just played at a different speed, different intensity, different style than they play in Europe. And European clubs have noticed that and they've concluded that the thing to do is to sign Brazilian youngsters as young as possible. Before because, they're tainted? Yes. The longer they spend in Brazilian football, they're going to learn a certain way of playing that's going to be difficult to unlearn. So they trust... What, what, what the, give me an example so they, of one of those bad habits, though, Just Moss. midfielders are, dwell on the ball because it, they're used to having more time on the ball in Brazil. The game is not as compact. The space in between lines. Defenders uh, defend deeper in Brazil. Um, so there, there's a whole variety of things. And so... The European clubs, they trust their scouts to identify who the most talented youngsters are, and they want to buy them now 18, 19 years old and bring them to Europe and teach them how to play. And Brazilian clubs get offered all this money for these youngsters, and they can't say no. And so the model in Brazil has become that you just sell your top academy players as young as possible, and then you use that money to build a more experienced team with guys that failed in Europe and came back or veterans at the end of their careers. And the problem is we've, we've lost any connection with the development of our own players. We just send them off to Europe and hope that they develop them properly. And there's lots of guys that I think were talented, but they, were, they weren't mentally ready at the age of 18 to leave their home country and go to Europe. There are guys that go to the wrong clubs. There are guys that I think like a Gabriel Jesus, had star potential, but then went to a context in Europe that turned him into more of a role player at Manchester City, and it just affected his mentality and his way of playing, became more of a functional player rather than trying to be a star. And so it just knocked a lot of guys off their course where I think if they had been developed differently, they, they could have turned into stars. But 
Romario and Ronaldinho and Ron, I mean, these players, they all played in the Brazilian league. All right. So is it that Europe, the style of Europe has changed so dramatically, or is it that the style of Brazil, because it's not as if bad fields or a slower type of play is something new to Brazilian soccer, is it? I still think there, there are exceptions every which way you look, you can find exceptions, but I still think the ideal formula is for a player to spend a little bit longer in Brazil. Now, again, it's incumbent on Brazil to create conditions where a player can spend more time there and not feel like it's hurting his development. What does uh, that mean, more better conditions? Better grass? Yes, improve the quality of the pitches. <laughs> but improve the but in the past, it's never been about the grass. That's the whole point, right? They've been able to dribble wherever. Just listen, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and reduce the amount of games and create a context where the game in Brazil is a bit more similar to Europe in terms of the pace, the intensity. And so... Uh, European clubs feel more comfortable leaving Brazilian players there longer. They can spend a little longer in Brazil. And by the time they move to Europe, they're more established, they're more confident going straight into a Brazilian, to a European club and, and becoming a star and being a key player instead of going there as raw prospects that still need to be developed. I, I just think long-term, that's, that's the wrong formula and that's leading to a lower success rate. You know, Neymar... He, people don't realize this. He made his debut for Santos at 17. He spent four full years in Brazil, played over 200 games for Santos. By the time he left for Barcelona, he was already like an established star that walked right into the Barcelona lineup as like a marquee signing. It wasn't like this raw teenager they were signing that they were going to develop for two, three years down the road. And I, I, I think that's the better formula overall. So. All right. Like you said, we could go on and on because I, I, I would push back on some different things, but, but I love the fact that you think about this and this is, like I said, a longer conversation. So, but. well, let's, let's end on Messi so we can yeah. segue. Um, by the way, Messi didn't have a problem. I know it's Argentina as opposed to Brazil, right. but I mean, he played in, in, well, he's an extreme case. He left at 13, right? He's How basically, <laughs> he was able to adjust to the, year. um, uh, Messi, uh, he, he actually was quite poor, uh, last night and he talked about how having to warm up and then go back in the locker room and warm up again, kind of affected him. And, and he, I guess was carrying a bit of an injury. And so he got subbed off in the second half, which is unusual with the game still in the balance. Uh, interesting stat. I saw eight competitive matches, uh, against Brazilian's career, zero goals and right. zero assists. I saw that too. I yeah. That too. Interesting. Uh, first off, uh, Otamendi's hang time for a 35-year-old is pretty impressive. Very impressive. Uh, yeah. Pretty pretty impressive uh, in that. And that, to Messi's point, the Argentine team was able to regroup, come back, and make history. Obviously, with that with that win, given the scenes that we saw before the game, uh, was was incredible. I do think they are the much better team right now. So, had it been a quote unquote normal game, I think they would have won easily. I think they were the more affected team by all the craziness and the kickoff being late because they had family that were in the stands that they weren't sure right. how, what, if they were safe or not. So you could tell they were kind of thrown off by that. And so they actually produced a pretty lousy performance by their standards where Brazil should have been able to at least eke out a draw. And, and yeah, Brazil is such a mess right now. They even managed to lose a game in which Argentina put forth like a C plus performance by their standards. Uh, and by the way, weird story brewing with Argentina. Lionel Scaloni in the post-game right. press conference started talking about how I'm not sure how much longer I can do this. And Argentina needs a coach that has the energy to do the job and sort of hinting at that he might be on his way out, which would be kind of bizarre because things have been going great. I mean, he must have some sort of inkling that there is a job or something like that. And, Saudi Arabia. Or something. I mean, there's something there where he's going to make a lot of money and it's less pressure. And and look, he he can only fail, I guess, at this point after taking them to the uh, to the promised land. And for a for a coach that does not have a whole lot of experience right now, that he's getting offers is is relative to what he did with the national team. And so yeah, but it was weird that it just kind of dropped 
in the post-game press conference. I know it was a surprise to the players, evidently, and to a lot of people out there. So we'll see where that ultimately goes. And who knows, maybe come next summer uh, when we are watching Argentina at uh, Copa America, which, by the way, you can watch on Fox. They will be led uh, in terms of head coach by somebody different. Thank God Brazil don't have to qualify for the Copa America. Well, that's, I mean, that goes, I mean, that was ultimately when we showed your clip right there, you did start it off, you know, talking about how... Yeah. I guess, I, although, I guess the only thing I would amend... Uh, in that whole spiel I had was that I said qualifying is going to be no problem. I'm now starting to become slightly oh, worried about that. Stop. You're Brazil in sixth place out of 10 teams. That's the last automatic spot. It's uh, oh my six and a half. Yeah. And, and by the way, I want to apologize to Johnny Infantino in lieu of where Brazil sits in the standings. I am in favor of the expanded 48 team <laughs> World Cup. That was the right call, Johnny. Uh, speaking of Messi, we transition to another interesting story. Rumors swirling that Inter Miami might be lining up a game against. Cristiano Ronaldo's Saudi Arabian club, which is Al Nasser, by the way. Sean Sullivan put Al Hilal in the uh, rundown. That's he. that's Neymar's team. He. Wow. Um, and that would be in February. Though Inter Miami, that I see, they've come out and and refuted those rumors. Yeah, they. Well, it was a it was a strange non denial denial or whatever. Right. It was th that the quotes attributed to. Uh, I guess Jorge Mas or leadership over there at Inter Miami were not necessarily true. And they continue to look at their options when it comes to preseason for Inter Miami. And look, you know, even back in the day when we were with the Galaxy and, and Beckham was there, you needed to tour. And we did. We toured all over the place. And you need to go out there and get that money with him. And this would, I think this actually, from an Inter Miami perspective, makes a lot of sense because you know they're going to travel when it comes to uh, preseason, that they can travel and they can go to Saudi Arabia and establish those links with these two guys. I mean, this, this would be a global type of uh, must-see moment. We don't know, if we're, you know how many we're going to get in the future and that you could create this situation where these two teams are playing from Inter-Miami's global aspirational perspective it's huge, but also the bigger picture of Messi and Ronaldo once again back on the field, albeit in some very different contexts in the teams that they are. I think it just makes too much sense to not have it happen. On the topic of Saudi Arabia, Ali Tihad, which is another prominent Saudi Arabian club where Kareem Benzema plays at, they just hired Marcelo Gajardo as their head coach. They're going to be in the Club World Cup next month, might play against Fluminense. Uh, that's also because on Gallardo wanted to test himself <laughs> in, at the best and the highest level in the world, obviously. Uh, we transitioned to the MLS Cup playoffs, which uh, return this upcoming weekend. Uh, conference semifinals. Uh, the two East games are on Saturday. The two West games are on Sunday. In the East, we've got Cincinnati hosting Philadelphia in the 1-4 matchup. These two teams met at this stage. Last year, Philadelphia claimed a 1-0 home win. This time, at Cincinnati hosting. They continue to reap the rewards from their incredible regular season. Pat Noonan named Coach of the Year. Matt Miazga named Defender of the Year. Miazga, though, will miss this game against Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, Pat Noonan. Congratulations to Pat Noonan, Coach of the Year. I thought it was going to be Bradley Carnell over there at uh, uh, St. Louis. Uh, but what Pat has done, and now for now multiple years, is is pretty impressive, and how good they have been. And we'll see if it continues on in in the playoffs. I know Pat has been very public about how this time off is not good, and I even think I heard him say today that if he if he were to you know predict what next year looks like that they're going to change it yet yet again because this is a long layoff and you're out of sight out of mind and you know you mentioned mls playoffs and we're, okay we're back in mls playoffs after this window and it it couldn't be helped because of uh because of the window here um i think i said before 
I have both of the away teams going through in the East. So I have Philadelphia finding a way past Cincinnati. And if that were to happen, once again, the Supporters' Shield winners uh, would not be able to parlay it into an MLS Cup. And we know all of the connections and the history and the relationship when it comes to Philadelphia and Cincinnati with, uh, you know, with Chris Albright and with Pat Noonan and all these uh, different relationships that they, have, that they have had. So that would be interesting. It's kind of like the, uh, the teacher and the, uh, the student, the student being Cincinnati and the teacher being Philadelphia. And then the 2-3 matchup in the East, Orlando City hosting Columbus. Yeah, uh, Orlando City is not sneaky good anymore. And they're one of these teams that we see probably in a lot of sports that get hot in playoffs and they are feeling it right now. But speaking of feeling it, you know, Columbus, even though they have to go to Orlando, I, I still, I think I'm picking Columbus. I think, I think I'm picking Columbus over, uh, over Orlando. Yeah, because Orlando... I feel like they have they have that moment in them, but no, don't, don't think for a second this isn't going to be a, a show. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be nuts because both of these teams they tend to they tend to do that. And certainly Orlando playing at home in Orlando, crazy things happen both on and off the field. So I think it'll be crazy. I think ultimately Columbus gets through. In the West, the two three matchup: Seattle hosts LAFC. Some playoff history here: 2019 Conference Final. At Bank of California, Seattle 1-3-1. I attended that match with our former Fox Sports colleague, Jason Carapesi, who was a big LAFC fan. Remember, LAFC had won the Supporters' Shield, yep. lost in the conference final. In the 20-minute walk back to the car, I had to listen to this rant from him about the playoff format and how in any other country, LAFC would have just been champions because they had the most points, and this is a joke. Blah, oh, blah, so blah. He, he wasn't, it wasn't even about the format. It was about that it even existed. That the playoffs, that even, playoffs existed. even existed. Wow. Um, okay. And then the following year, 2020, they met in the first round at Lumen Field. Seattle won that 3-1 as well. So uh, we'll see what LAFC can do here. Yeah, I am going to go with both home teams in the West, unlike the East, where I'm going with the away teams. So that would mean that Seattle... Uh, hosting, as you said, LAFC coming up to Seattle up there on that uh, on that AstroTurf. Uh, yeah, I got Seattle going through. And then the 4-8 matchup, Houston hosting SKC, who after dispatching St. Louis, they're, they're a trendy pick to win MLS Cup despite being only an eight seed. SKC is the trendy pick? Yep, a lot of people. Why wouldn't Houston be the trend, trendy pick? I mean, that's a, that's a fairy tale type of worst to first-ish type of uh, thing in terms of what Ben Ben Olsen has has done. And they won uh, they won Open Cup too, right? Correct. So a big, big year for Houston. Yeah, I got Houston in Houston, bringing it on the field and off the field in terms of the environment. And I got, this is where Sporting KC, this is where the fairy tales, speaking of fairy tales, uh, end for the eighth seed Sporting KC. So I got Houston winning. And these are single elimination matches. Single elim- we're back to single elimination. <laughs> if they're tied after 90 minutes, we do go to extra time. No. Oh, all right. So then, then we're back to extra time. Yes. Uh, we're not going to do a full-blown European preview here, but a couple of games I do want to mention. Friday, PSG hosts Monaco. Uh, Saturday, Man City, Liverpool. Uh, much the chagrin of our boss, Zach Kenworthy, wow. Wow. who's a big Liverpool fan, feels like they always get the short end having to play the first game coming out of an international break. We have to listen to that rant. Jeez. I mean, it must be so exhausting, con- constantly feeling aggrieved and making making it public how aggrieved you are and from a historic perspective. Yeah, so Zach and Mr. Costigan and all the uh, Liverpool fans are just are, are just 
up in arms and they're they're angry. Although they might have to face uh, Man City without Erlen Holland. We'll see. You know, he yeah. was left out of the, his international sec, second international game, but he is nursing a uh, a problem. But if Zach was here, he would say and he would show me the data of the amount of times that they have been forced to play that uh, that opening game. But suck it up, Buttercup. You're going to be fine. And then Sunday, uh, Juventus entered a Derby d'Italia. So some some big games. Big games. This week. Big games. We're back to uh, the club situation and, like you said, all sorts of wonderful things uh, happening. All right. Anything else? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your comments, questions, and concerns. And you can do it over social media. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi. And keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi on all the uh, social media platforms out there. Or you can call into our State of the Union podcast voice mailbox at 657-549-2297. That is 657-549-2297. Mossy, what do the folks want to hear uh, this episode? Uh, we have a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey guys, during the last broadcast, they mentioned a lot of times that the U.S. is the 11th ranked team in the world. Um, just curious, outside of FIFA's um, calculations, where you guys think the U.S. should actually be ranked? And if you might be interested in doing like a State of the Union top 25 after every international window. Um, curious your thoughts. This is Adam from California. I'll hang up and listen. Okay, Adam, thank you, uh, first off, for calling into our State of the Union podcast hotline. Uh, I think Adam likes our power rankings. I think he likes lists, as a lot of people do out there. Top 25 might be a little bit much. Um, keep in mind that when we talk about the FIFA rankings, uh, as is often the case, uh, when, it, when it makes you look good, obviously it's the most important thing in the world. And when it makes you not look good, it's the most ridiculous thing uh, ever. It is far from an exact science. And oftentimes when these rankings come out, and let's be honest, it's not such a dirty little secret, but part of the reason uh, why these are so successful is it does get people to argue. It does get people to debate and does get people to scratch their heads. So the U.S. being in the 11th position, is that justifiable? Uh, I, I can certainly make a case, uh, for people that are uh, watching, you can see on the screen, the, um, I guess the, uh, the list there, but if you go through it, I'm hard pressed to find anybody in the top 10 that I would put the U S at or above, even with the likes. Well, I might put, I might put them around Italy. Okay. I may possibly have them around Croatia. Um, but more importantly, is there anybody behind us that I think should be ranked higher? And that's where you get into the likes of Uruguay and Germany and Colombia and Morocco. And I, so if I had to put the U S in a different position from 11, I think they would probably end up in my top 20, top 25 being around the 15th position, if you, if you will. And I can certainly make a case putting, like I said, the likes of um, Germany and Uruguay and Colombia and maybe Morocco. Man, I'm not, not necessarily Morocco. Should be noted that Mexico is in, uh, is in 12th place. But, you know, again, it's fun to talk about. And it's a, I guess, a use, useful tool in creating a stir, which is exactly what FIFA or anybody else putting out a list want to do. But, 
the stock that is put on it against, well, again, is relative to how it makes you feel and look. Just to give a little larger context, uh, the FIFA rankings, it used to be weighted in such a way that games in Europe and South America were worth a lot more points than in other regions. And then after the 2018 World Cup, they decided to change that for the sake of parity, to not be so elitist. They wanted to give teams in these other regions a chance to shoot up and maybe end up in higher pots for these World Cup draws. Um, and so the U.S. has been one of the big beneficiaries of that because the U.S. was in entering the summer of 2021. The U.S. was in the low 20s. And then by virtue of winning the Nations League and the Gold Cup back to back, they shot up all the way up to 10. And, and then they won another Nations League recently. So as long as the U.S. keeps doing well in CONCACAF and, and winning those competitions, that's going to keep them up there. Uh, we can debate whether they should be up there or not. But that's why if you sort of think it's strange that the U.S., without having done anything really in a global context that impressive. It doesn't necessarily help you relative to the World Cup draw because you're just taking the place of somebody else. And if that somebody else happens to play in Europe and is that much better, but just because of the fact that they play in Europe, aren't going to get there, they could show up in your group anyway. That's true. Yeah. All right. All right. Anyway, um, where, where would you put them if, uh, uh, if you had the U.S.? Around 15th? Does that, does that seem fair? Instead yeah. of 11th? Yeah, I buy that. Um, is I Columbia would, ahead of them? Is what I'm asking, I guess. Columbia ahead of them? You know... Uh, Not necessarily, right? They didn't qualify for the World Cup. Okay. I mean, man for man, maybe, but as far as results, um, you know, Germany for all they their... They just lost to Germany. For all their struggles, we just watched Still those Germany. two teams play. It feels like Germany's a better Uruguay? team. Uruguay, I think, is a better team than the U.S., but they just, they went out in the group stage of the World yeah. Cup. The U.S. got to the round of 16, but I would put Uruguay above them. But yeah, there's not that many teams. So yeah, I buy it. Yeah, somewhere okay. around 15, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let us know what you think. Where would uh, you put the U.S. In, a, uh, in your top 20, if you will? By the way, number 18 is my new favorite team, Japan. Remember how high I am on Japan? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, right. And uh, let's. I mean, then it goes on and on and on. Uh, and on uh, Brazil, number three, by the way, uh, on current form, we are not even one of the top uh, thirty best national teams in the Don't world. Don't you so. worry about Brazil. Brazil's <laughs> going to be just fine, regardless of who ultimately ends up coaching them. Uh, all right, what else we have? Uh, next up, we have a question on X. By the way, somebody pointed out to me that I made a big show of the fact that I was going to keep calling it Twitter instead of X. But ever since then, I have been calling it X. So I've, oh, I've... Oh, I can't believe you said that. Oh my goodness! Here we go. I, I have something for you here. Yeah. I want to. I want to bring something up here. Uh, just give me two seconds here. I'm going to pull up my mom. Sure. It's not like we're you know, on air. Ah, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. I'm going to pull up my mom here because it's funny that you said that about X. My mom always gets to the root of any problems out there. Um. So the other day, I wake up to this text from my mom. Hey, Lex. Isn't it time for the media to stop calling X, quote, formerly known as Twitter, question mark? We know what X is. If there's a chance we could go back to Twitter with that cute little blue birdie, then the media should keep reminding us with the prince-like phrase. Otherwise, they should drop it. So my mom has spoken, all right? You no longer have to say formerly known as Twitter. We have gotten to the point where everybody understands that when you say X, it is what was formerly known as Twitter. So my mom has spoken. And like I said, she goes into the interesting things. So I, I responded to her. I said, hot take, mom. And then she was worried that she didn't understand something uh, that was happening in the world. Because she's, you know, she's always worried that that something's you know, beyond her or, or, or that the world is passing her by. I said, mom, Nothing is passing you by, and certainly not anything that's happening on X, let alone uh, Twitter. <laughs> okay. 
so the question, Chase Swartz on X asks, uh, pumpkin, apple, or pecan pie? Oh, all right. This is actually a easy answer for me. And, and we are in the season, if you will, where all of these hot takes are going to come out and all of these compare and contrasts and choices when it comes to what you have. Um, there is only one of these three pumpkin. Did you say pecan or pecan? What do you, what do you, pecan pie. I think I say pecan pie. Uh, there's probably someone out there that's screaming or pecan. I say pecan, but it doesn't really matter because I don't eat it. Uh, if it if I had those three sitting in front of me, it's not even a question. I would go for apple. Uh, I the whole pumpkin pie thing is ridiculous to me. I don't understand why this this is a phenomenon. I don't understand how there are people out there that enjoy it. I mean, just the thought of a pumpkin making that gourd into something that you eat is ridiculous, as opposed to a beautiful, nice little shiny sweet apple there. That makes a piece of pie, not a pumpkin. I mean, that's that's the that, that's a joke. And then pecan, all the nuts. I, I'm not a big I'm not a big nut guy. I, I like I like almonds just as plain nuts. But when it comes to a sweet, I don't want nuts in my sweet. For example, you know, Snickers. I'll have a Snickers, but I'd much rather have a Milky Way that doesn't have the nut part uh, part of it. I mean, I think you ruin sweets with nuts. You? Uh, apple pie guy. Yeah. In fact, there's a place called Apple Pan down the road from here. Pretty much any party I get invited to where I have to bring something, I always pick up an apple pie from Apple Pan. Are you a pie or a cake person? Because I am a cake person. If I have to choose between the two, I am always going the cake side. Cake. Yeah? Yeah. My God, you're awesome. Wonderful. All right, listen, we get to the heart, uh, again, of all of the questions, whether it's what X should be called going forward uh, and my mom coming through on that or whether it's a situation here where Chase is asking us to identify the best pie. And I think we have come to the conclusion that it is and forever shall be apple and nothing else. Uh, but let us know if you disagree uh, out there. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. And we come back. Yes, it is Thanksgiving, and I will tell you what I am so thankful for. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. By the way, I will say that in, a, in the break, uh, producer Sean got on and said that... Uh, he has he likes pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving, um, but his favorite pie in the world evidently is pecan, 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 whatever, which is insane. But it it tracks for uh, for Sean. All right, listen. Regardless of what uh, you are eating this Thanksgiving, I hope that you are with family and friends. Um, you know, at this time and. I recognize and respect the fact that not everybody that listens to this show, as a matter of fact, many people that listen to this show aren't necessarily Americans, aren't necessarily celebrating Thanksgiving at this time. But I think most other countries and cultures have um, days, have moments dedicated to uh, to Thanksgiving. And even if you don't, I think you can understand having a day. Should you be thankful all the time? Yes. But this is certainly a day to at least take a moment, take a breath and recognize what you are thankful for. And I'm sure all of us here have, uh, have different things. And I think sure all of us listening and or watching out there have some things that, uh, that we have in common. Obviously, traditionally, this is a time to be with family and friends and to uh, have a good time. And as we said, to, uh, to eat and to celebrate, but ultimately uh, to give thanks. We live in a, Mossy, I think you'll agree, a interesting time in a dangerous time, if you will, and at times a maddening and I guess sad time, but also in a wondrous uh, time. 
and in a uh, in a world that I do think the good far outweighs the bad. And I am thankful for all of that good out there, uh, that good that exists in the soccer world that obviously we inhabit, but also beyond that. I am incredibly fortunate and thankful for uh, being a citizen and living in what I feel is the greatest country in the world, uh, in the United States, and all of the privileges and the freedoms that that, uh, that, that gives me. I'm also thankful uh, for the amount of time that I have spent in this soccer world and all of the different people and all the different men and women, many of them that are here, many of them that <laughs> work with us and make us look each and every, uh, each, uh, look as good as we possibly can each and every time uh, that we come on air. But all of the different relationships uh, and different experiences that, have I, that I have had through this game of soccer and through this thread. I mean, I am sitting with you here, Mossy. I know you because of the game of, of soccer and all that it has brought to me, all that it has given me and all of the different relationships uh, that I have. And I don't take that for granted. I don't take those relationships for granted and I don't take the opportunities that we have. Before we came on air, I was doing some, uh, some interviews and I was talking with somebody about the, um, the state of uh, our digital uh, platform that we have here, the expansion of it and the, the uh, technology that we have and how far we have, uh, we have come. And I think back, you know, I've been doing podcasts now and I know we use that word and it encompasses so much more right now, but I've been doing this for over a decade. When I go back and I think about, you know, stuff that I was doing at ESPN and coming over to Fox. And I think about us being in that closet over there, uh, that was the studio, if you will, of the state of the union and all the different things that we've done. And now we're sitting here in this, uh, this, this beautiful place. Um, but I bring it back around to the fact that as you are sitting at home and as you are with your family and friends, I hope that you share the thanks of first off, having the freedom and the ability to do that. Because as we know, not everybody out there has it. And certainly at this time and in this season, there are a lot of people in our own country and around the world that aren't afforded that wonderful freedom and that wonderful ability to be with friends uh, and to be with family. And when I talk about friends and family, obviously there's the immediate one, but then there's this bigger family that we are a part of that is the soccer family out there. And it continues to amaze me in the things that it does. It continues to amaze me in the way that it has grown. It continues to amaze me in the heart and the personality and the flavor and the color. Uh, and yes, the joy that exists. And so in this world and in this age where it's very easily, very easy to get sucked up into the negative and to get sucked up into the darkness and the problems that we have, there is so much good and there are so many more good things and there are so many good people. And I'm just thankful that uh, I have the opportunity to work with many of them and over the years to have not only met people, but uh, had wonderful experiences uh, with them. So I'm wishing everybody out there a wonderful, he uh, healthy and happy Thanksgiving. Whether you're in the United States or not, I hope, as I said, you are with people that you love and that love you. And uh, um, I'll end it there, Mossy. Anything you'd like to add? 
I thought it was interesting. Our old friend Kiara popped in the studio right before we started taping to wish us a happy Thanksgiving. And she had that look in her eye of, I, I made a big mistake. I miss you guys. Family, you know. But yeah. you know what? Like any family, you may go off into the world. You may go different places, but you can always come home. And the State of the Union, my friends, is a home. It is our home. The door is always unlocked. The light is always on. And we are always there with a big old soccer hug. And we appreciate the fact that so many people uh, do come in for that hug. Um, anything else, Mossy, before we go? Uh, you mentioned earlier, but uh, there is a football game in Ann Arbor on Saturday. <laughs> uh, so that's on Saturday, right? The, the Buckeyes of Ohio State will travel up to God's uh, land up there in Michigan in Ann Arbor at the big house, they call it, right? Up there in Ann Arbor Correct. and then play against the Wolverines. Correct. Oof. My goodness. Are you nervous, my friend? Uh, well, you know, Jim Harbaugh will not be on the sidelines. This is the last of his three-game suspension. Um, if there is a team in America that's uniquely qualified to not have its coach, it's Michigan because it's been like half the games this season. So uh, we know the drill. Uh, Do you have a prediction? Uh, gun to my head, I think Michigan will win, but it's going to be close. But I'm told that even if Ohio State loses, like I said, they're still going to be okay when it comes to the final four. It just can't make it. It can't be a big blowout. If you're going to lose, don't lose by, by a lot. Make it close. Yeah, I would say this is an elimination game for Michigan. With one loss, we would have no case. Ohio State, because this game is on the road, if they were to lose a really close game, uh, they would still have a case to be in that uh, last four, depending on other results. Well, I want to have a nice weekend, all right? And so, as you know, uh, with, with my wife's affinity to, uh, to Ohio State, I just hope that it goes, it goes well. I, I guess for both of you, but when it really comes down to it, I would much rather have a better weekend. Michigan beat Maryland this past weekend, and it was our 1,000th all-time win. I saw and that. Even I had to chuckle at the jokes about, hey, you're going to get to celebrate 1,000 wins again because you're going to vacate all of these because wow. of that. <laughs> wow. My goodness. All right, listen, uh, let's get out of here. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone out there. We'll be back again uh, next week with uh, the State of the Union. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the 